Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Have you ever been in a place and you've just been amazed? It's like, I can't believe I'm standing here. Like the dugout at Wrigley Field, right? Uh, The White House, Taj Mahal, I mean, Grand Canyon. I mean, just places that you just, you think about, but you never imagine being there. And when you're there, you just have that overwhelming feeling of, wow, I can't believe I'm here. That's sort of the, the mindset of the Hebrew people as we continue our series, Jesus is Greater Than. We find ourselves in chapter 9 and, and the, the mentality of the Hebrew believers. Again, they were Hebrew in blood, but Christian in faith. They had turned away from the rituals and they have followed the one true God, Jesus the Messiah, who fulfilled all the prophecies. And, and so now there's this battle. And so as the writer is writing to them, he's reminding them of the majesty and the splendor of Jesus, his salvation. And so he's been walking us through this, this journey, but it's sort of that mindset of, I can't believe that I'm, I'm here or that I'm invited to go in that I think sort of sets up the idea for chapter nine. What we've seen is the, the writer of the letter is, is uh, writing to these Hebrew believers. He'll make a point and then he'll build on that point. Um, you know, there's sort of a legal precedent almost kind of taking place. He'll make a statement, he'll build on that statement and he's securing their belief and their understanding. I think probably good for many of us. We've come to the place we've trusted Jesus and maybe that was an emotional experience once upon a time, but it's important to know not just what you believe, but why you believe what you believe. And that might just trigger something with you this morning. Why do I believe what I believe about Jesus? Well, that's because that's what my pastor says all the time, or that's what I learned in Sunday school. But why do you believe it? Do you own that faith? And so that's sort of where he's, he's pressing in. And he, he continues uh, to make the case for Jesus as our great high priest. He is a high priest that is superior to all others. And he talked about Melchizedek as Pastor Scott unpacked that passage. And, and in Hebrews 7, he made the statement that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Well, he said that in chapter 7, but that was really his argument of chapter 8 as he talked about what is this new covenant. And we kind of looked at that last week. And last week in chapter 8, verse 1, he said, now the point in what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, get this, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, that was significant enough to these Hebrew hearers that he wanted to go back and help them understand that because that was a frightful thing for them. And you're going to see that as we look through this passage of Scripture because literally they were being invited to a place they never imagined that they would go. Now, Pastor Scott has said this a lot, and I love the phrase, when we look at Scripture, we have to understand that that some things are not written to us, but they're written for us. There are some things in Scripture that are clearly written to us as New Testament believers, but this is one of those passages I look at and I go, this is not necessarily written to us. This was written to these Hebrews who have trusted Jesus, but clearly it's written for us. And so I trust there's some things that you'll kind of unpack as we work through this passage. 
this morning. And it would be easy, I'll just tell you right now, as I wrestled with this passage, it would have been really easy to just give a history lesson on the nation of Israel and the wilderness wanderings and the tabernacle and all those kind of things. And those are important. Don't get me wrong. Those are important. That's why this week on Small Group Study Guide, we had you back in the book of Exodus 24 up through 34, 36. You see a lot of this and it builds a case for it. It helps you understand the mentality of these readers. But instead of pressing into all that, although I think it's valuable, I think the greatest thing we can take away from this is personal application because truthfully, when we read Scripture, we look at it and, and my favorite question is, so what? So what, what am I supposed to do with that? And so as we look at this passage, I want to make it very personal to each of us this morning. And as we do that, I think it's good to know all this information and all the historical things because it does set some things up. But I think what I see here in the text, and this is perhaps where some of us are, uh, the, the Hebrew believers were sort of at a crossroads. You ever been to the crossroads? Any blues fans, right? Blues always talks about crossroads. But, um, you know, you have a choice to make. You can go this way to this place, or you can go this way to this place. What doesn't work is if you simply go down the middle. <laughs> I'm not going to arrive at both destinations if I simply split the difference and go down the middle. But I think part of what I see in the book of Hebrews reading it through is that they were sort of at a crossroads in their faith, a, a crisis of faith, if you would. Anybody ever had a crisis of faith? If not, let me know. I want to pray for you because you need to experience one. <laughs> I, I've never grown more than when I, I have a crisis of faith because it's in those moments I turn to Jesus or I turn from Jesus. It's in those hard moments where, where I have to wrestle with my faith and say, what is it that I truly believe? It's great to have all the shiplap, little quick little sayings and everything else, but at some point we have to embrace it with our life. And I think that's part of what's going on with these Hebrew believers. Uh, they were kind of asking the question, hey, why not just have the best of both worlds? Uh, yeah, I've trusted Jesus, but why can't I go back to all my traditions? Why not return to the temple, but also practice the Christian faith? Why not indeed? Well, some of us have come to that place of simply saying, I want just enough Jesus that I can go to heaven, but not enough Jesus that he's going to radically change my life. I want just enough Jesus that it makes me feel good, but not enough that it changes everything that I do. I don't want him to change my purpose in life or my identity, and I don't want him to get into all my stuff. And so we sort of dabble in the Christian faith. We, we want enough of Jesus that we get up and go to church, you know, as long as it's not too cold or it's not too wet or too hot or too polleny. Or as long as my team won the night before, I can go and I can worship. If my team didn't win, I can't go worship. True story, the church we came from historically, if the Arkansas Razorbacks won on Saturday, giving was better on Sunday. I'm telling it's the honest truth. We could track it. It's like, what does that have to do with my devotion to Jesus? Totally off script, but just made me think of it. I want just enough Jesus that I can do the things that I'm comfortable with with Jesus, but I don't want enough Jesus that he's going to make my life uncomfortable. I still want all the things of this world. 
I, I want all the comforts. And if I'm not pressing into the deep intimacy with Jesus, enjoying Him fully in personal devotion, I, I'm going to just get some more Jesus stuff. Maybe I need a new Jesus pen or a new Jesus plaque for my desk or some Bible verse on shiplap that I can hang on my wall, or I need some new, new Jesus music. I never imagined a day in my life that, that would come that worship music is a genre of music. Part of me is appalled by that. And I think we've commercialized it to the point that some of us in our Christian faith are at a crossroads of going, do I really believe what I say I believe, or do I like all the Jesus stuff that I have? Do I worship the stuff more than I worship Jesus? Do I worship worship more than I worship the God of my worship? Do you leave and go, man, they didn't play my favorite song today, I'm upset? Or did you enter into the throne room of the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God Almighty, and worship with all your heart? These are crossroads that, that we wrestle with in our faith. And so after reading this part of the letter, I am positive that the Hebrew Christians who had received this had to realize there's no middle ground. There's, there's no middle ground. I have to go all in or I'm not in at all. And, and we see that as we press through this process. It's easy to, to stop and wonder what were these guys thinking? What, what was their mindset? And I think much like the Hebrews, the writer is addressing when I was just reading through it this week again, I, I started to see things that I thought, you know, that makes sense now that maybe they're at this crossroads or crisis of faith or they're not sure what to do because there were evidences of them drifting and not pressing in close to Jesus. Let me just give you some things that I uncovered. Because in an attempt to have it both ways, they're, they're struggling, and maybe that's you. You're, you want to have both ways. You, you want enough of Jesus, but you still want the world, and you're not really sure what to do. In chapter 2, verse 1, they were talking about being spiritually careless, and they were drifting. Pastor Scott pressed into that passage. And in chapter 3, it talked about them falling away, right? If you're not pressing in deep to Jesus, but you're distracted by the things of the world, what are you doing? You're drifting. You're falling away. Chapter 4, there was a lack of spiritual rest and security. There was disobedience, he says, from the lack of devotion to the Word of God. Chapter 5 was talking about apostasy. Apostasy is simply knowing the truth, rejecting the truth, and replacing the truth with your own opinion. That's apostasy. Don't tell me that's not going on in our culture. Chapter 5 also said that, that they're, uh, they needed spiritual teachers. When, he said, when you should be teaching others, you need teachers. The, he said, they're not spiritually mature. There's no spiritual discernment. Verse 15 says that, um, that they were unskilled in the word of righteousness. In other words, they weren't able to handle rightly the word of God to discern life situations. He says they were still living on milk. Chapter 6, he says that their works are dead. They have no spiritual life in them. Those are evidences of a people who are at a spiritual crossroads. They want enough Jesus to feel good about themselves like they're going to go to heaven, but they really don't want the Jesus of the Bible. And the problem is those two are really not compatible. That's not the gospel. The gospel calls us to die to ourselves, to surrender ourselves completely and fully to the person and work of Jesus Christ. If not, what you're doing is going through religious routine. 
That's what the Hebrews were struggling with. We've trusted Jesus, but we want to go back to the spiritual routine that we were comfortable with, all the tradition. And so it's at this crossroad, this crisis of faith, you have a choice. It's time to step closer or it's time to step into a place that you never imagined. That's what he's inviting them to. And so here he points us to Jesus who is serving in his role as the great superior high priest. And Jesus is inviting us in to the holy place to enjoy him fully. So three points I'm going to give you this morning. First, I want you to see that there's life outside Christ. There's life outside Christ. Beginning in chapter 9 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 1, he says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent, hang on to that, he mentioned that in chapter 8, verse 2, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, or your translation may say holy of holies. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, the holy place, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, the holy of holies, only the high priest goes, and but once, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. You're probably sitting here going, what in the world is he talking about? Anybody besides me? Again, the Hebrew mindset would have known exactly what the writer's talking about. And so I just want to unpack this just, just quickly because it sets the tone for their understanding. Again, they've trusted Jesus, but now they're tempted to go back to religious activity and duties and responsibilities. And so uh, I'll give you a picture up here um, of, the, of the, the tabernacle, the tent, as it were. This very clear instruction, how this was to be built, the dimensions of how it was to be built, how many poles, what were the dimensions of the curtains, the rings that those were going to be put on, the rods that they were going to be hung on, the full dimensions. This is the outer court area. And clearly in the Old Testament, you can actually see where God said, when you're traveling through the wilderness and you stop, you set up this tent in this boundary area. And he actually told all the tribes where they are to camp around this tabernacle area. And to the east, because it always faced to the east, was the tribe of Levi, because they were the ones that would go in and, and uh, alter uh, or, or give the, the, help me out, give, give the sacrifices on the altar for the people. And then they would go into the tabernacle. And so what you saw as you go in the gate uh, is, is the altar where they would slaughter and they would, they would give the sacrifice. And then there's the, the bronze basin where they would wash, then they would go in. And so if we cut to the next one, which simply zooms in on that tabernacle area, this is actually what is referred to when he talks about the tabernacle. 
And the tabernacle was constructed very specifically. Uh, the first section, uh, what's called the holy place, was 15 feet high, 15 feet wide, 30 feet long. The back section, the holy of holies, is a 15-foot cube. It's all clearly laid out in Scripture. God told them, this is exactly what I want you to do. And it's covered, so the structure is actually covered with multiple layers of skin and linen and badger's skin and everything else to, to cover it. So this was an enclosed area. This is just a cutaway so that we could sort of see, as Scripture describes it, what it's looked like. Now, I want you to, to have this image simply because I want you to understand the heart of the people that this letter is written to. Because this is what they would think of when they think of the tent. When they hear the tent, this is what it is. And they didn't go there. It was only the, the priests that would go into the holy place, and it was only the high priest once a year that would go to that back section, the Holy of Holies. And in the, the Ark of the Covenant that was there, he tells us specifically what was in there, right? The tablets of the law, uh, a jar of manna, and, and Aaron's rod. And what's the significance of Aaron's rod? Again, why did he mention that? Of everything else that he could have mentioned, why did he mention Aaron rod, Aaron's rod? Because again, the Hebrew people would have thought exactly what that was. They knew this. This was their tradition, and they clearly understood. There's a great story in the Old Testament that you can go and you can pick it up, and, and it's really a pretty destructive thing because there's a rebellion taking place in the nation of Israel, and they're fighting for positions, and God sucks a bunch of them up in the ground. It's really kind of cool. And out of that, God says, take from all the tribes and have them write their name on a, a walking stick, if you've ever held a walking stick. And he said, I want you to take, take one from each tribe and I want you to write their name on it and I want you to put it in there and overnight one will bud. A, a dead walking stick doesn't bud, by the way. But he says, one of them will bud, and that will be the one that I want to serve as the great high priest. That was Aaron. And so in Leviticus, or Numbers chapter 17, these readers would have understood this story, and they would have understood the significance of Aaron's staff being in the Ark of the Covenant. And here's what it says, Numbers chapter 17, and the Lord said to Moses, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings against me lest they die. Thus did Moses as the Lord commanded him, so he did. And the people of Israel said to Moses, behold, now this is the people of Israel, this is the readers of this letter, their people would have said, everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? <laughs> That's their mindset. We don't go to the tabernacle. What do you mean we're invited into this true tent? We don't go there or we're going to die. That's their mindset because they're used to living outside. Some of us are used to living outside of covenant relationship with God with all the duties and all the religious activities and all the furniture but we've not pressed into deep relationship with Christ. And so there's life outside Christ. And although he mentions the details of all the furnishings and the physical tabernacle, um, the author's primary purpose is a spiritual purpose. He's reminding them that, that he's drawing attention from the external tangible things to the internal things, those spiritual matters of the heart. 
So he says in verse 9, he says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices uh, are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, there's no forgiveness. There's no peace. You've done all those things. You did those things for years, but you, your heart was still uneasy because you were outside relationship with Christ. Now you've entered into relationship with Christ, and he's simply reminding them how different that is. You've moved from outside to inside. You, you were outside, but now he's inviting them in. And he's saying that, that outside things can't ease your conscience. They can't ease the guilt and the hurt. You see, when we struggle with our sin and our guilt, we feel distant from God, don't we? When I sin and when there's unconfessed sin in my life, the last place I want to be is in the presence of God and God's people. I want to run. I want to hide. And all the external things I do are not going to ease that guilt until I bring it to the throne of grace and find forgiveness. Now, do you know why we feel guilty when we sin? Anybody? Do you know, you know why we feel that sense of guilt and that remorse? Because we're guilty, right? There's no, no, no surprise. We, we feel guilty because we're guilty. And all the physical, external, tangible things in the world aren't going to ease our conscience of guilt until we find forgiveness in Christ. So in that state of sin and rebellion, we long to be recipients of the mission of the great high priest while Christ invites us to come in and be participants. See, the longer you pursue the external things, you're simply pursuing others. You want to be the recipient of the mission when God invites us in to be participants. So we move from life outside Christ to life in Christ. Let me just pick up where we left off because the next four words of our text absolutely change everything. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared, somebody say amen. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He's reminding the Hebrews of their history and of their past and of them coming to Christ. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, uh, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised uh, eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Verse 16, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in, a, uh, in force as long as the one who made it is alive. 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, 
law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In a single moment, the blood sacrifice was both glorious and gory at the same time. But these Hebrews understood the significance of the blood. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so, in verse 15, the author clearly establishes really the, the overarching theme of this section of his letter, that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And he is a greater mediator. He is a more significant superior mediator because his death served to pay the sin that couldn't be paid under the old covenant. Thus, that enabled those who partake of the new covenant to inherit eternal life. It was a permanent thing. And so what he did was something somewhat common in, in, um, in the Jewish uh, interpreters of the time. And he developed an argument based on the dual meaning of a word right? The word covenant had a dual meaning. It had a biblical sense meaning where God was establishing a covenant with them, but it also was a legal term. Um, your, your translation may actually interpret some of that as being his last will or a will and testament because there was a legal ramification to it. So, he was simply saying, look, this is a covenant that God has established, but it's really his last will and testament. And it came into force because he died, if he hadn't died, the, the last will and testament could not be put into force. Therefore, as heirs or recipients of an inheritance, you are not yet entitled to that. But because Jesus died, his last will and testament, his covenant is now put into force, and you are the recipients, right, of the inheritance that you are allowed according to his covenant with you. Verse 22 the Hebrews readily agreed with the point that they were hearing. Because in 22, when it said, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. They would have said, yep, that's, that's absolutely true. We know that. We know that to be true. That's our history. That's our heritage. Their minds would have gone back to the Levitical law. They would have understand all the blood that was laid out, and it was essential for ritual cleansing and for setting something apart for worship. And the principle was the necessity of the blood. They would have thought of Leviticus chapter 17 as, as it states that for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And by doing so, he was reminding them of two absolutely critical theological truths. The first is that our sin is a terrible offense to a holy and righteous God. But second, that atonement for sin is costly. It, it cost a price. But they, they would have affirmed that. They would have immediately affirmed that. Yep, it, it's true. And as the mediator of this new covenant, Christ draws us to himself through his, what? Through his blood, through the forgiveness of sin, through redemption, through sanctification, he invites us to himself so that we can be spiritually transformed, leading to gospel saturation. He invites us from being recipients of the ministry to now being participants in the ministry. 
And so in verse 14, uh, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, get this, from dead works to serve the living God. You see, anything outside a relationship with God, no matter how good it is, it's still sinful and it's dead. But in this new relationship with Christ, our service takes on a whole new form. And Christ invites us in. And in doing so, we move from being that recipient of the mission to now being participants in the mission. But he's speaking to them right previously in the letter, it's time to grow up. You still need others to teach you. You're still living on the milk of the word. You should be pressing in. You're drifting. You're doing all these things. You don't know how to handle the word of righteousness. He's challenging them again to, to get in and become participants and not simply externally watching all the things that are taking place. But see, he doesn't simply invite us in, but he also invites us to live life with Christ. Jesus' invitation was always, come with me. Come follow me. Come be with me. You see, we we don't come into relationship with God and come here and leave him here. He goes with us. We live life with Christ. And so he picks it up in verse 23. He says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. In other words, everything up to this point was symbolic. It was a, a foreshadowing of things that were to come. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Somebody say amen. Amen. The rest of you go, what did we just read? (laughs) Our life with Christ, here's what he's telling us. Christ's death was qualitatively different than any other sacrifice that had been made. That that he is ministering from heaven, that he chose to step out of the glory and splendor of heaven, take on human form, live a sinless life. He chose to die. They did not take his life. Jesus said, I freely lay it down, right? Because I know that Dave can't pay the price for his sin. And my blood, my perfect blood is qualitatively different than any blood of any animal, any goat, any bull. and, And it will do the job for Dave. And it'll do the job for you. It was qualitatively different than the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, which had to be repeated over and over again because the stain of sin remained in their lives and it required a continual cleansing. And while the old system might be said to have covered our sin, Christ's blood, he tells us, put away our sin. 
He, he put it away. Look at verses 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Two absolute key phrases that the, the writer is giving them. One is to put away. He, he said he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Put away is, is a legal term that means to nullify or to make null and void. See, when I gave my heart and life to Christ and he forgave me of my sin, I don't have to take that sin back to him. It's null and it's void. And he says that he did it once, twice, he mentioned this in the text, once for all. And it emphasizes the fact that Christ is not sacrificed over and over and over again. It was once for all, qualitatively different, making my sin null and void in the presence of God because his blood covers my sin. And he brings me into righteous relationship with him. Now, again, this is significant to the reader because they would have understand God's human timeline. Because God's human timeline began with a man and a woman named Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, Adam and Eve, right? A man and a woman, God created them and he said, go, just go fill the earth. Do the stuff that men and women do together as husband and wife and, and bring me a lot of children. That's what I told all my kids when I married them. Go do the stuff you're supposed to do and bring me a bunch of grandchildren. But when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? Adam and Eve did exactly what I do. In my sin, they ran and hid. I don't want to be in the presence of God or God's people. I'm going to go hide somewhere. And what did God do? He pursued them. Listen to me. I don't care where you are and what's going on in your life, in the room, online. God loves you and he is pursuing you. He is in hot pursuit. He loves you so much and he wants you to understand this truth so much that he is pursuing you this morning. He is pursuing you. And when God found Adam and Eve, what did he say? Yeah, he said, where are you? He said, we're hiding because we're naked. And he said, who told you you were naked, right? He knew. God knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what was going on. Listen to me. You're not hiding a thing from God this morning. There's nothing in your life that he is not fully aware of. And you might think you're hiding somewhere. You're not because God knows. But here's the cool thing. He loves you so much. He's pursuing you. But I love this encounter because in Genesis chapter 3, we see the encounter with God and Adam and Eve. And he says, who told you that you were naked? And then what did he do? Come on, you know the Sunday school story. What did he do? He clothed them. Genesis chapter 3 verse 21 tells us this. It simply says, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, we can just read that or we can understand what it really says. In order for him to take skins to clothe them, what happened? Somebody died. Something died. God took the blood of an innocent animal and he clothed them. Then he introduced himself to the nation of Israel as 
Jehovah Sidkenu, God our righteousness. Because when we understand the righteousness of God and the blood sacrifice, we understand that his righteousness covers me. And when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He sees the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and he sees his righteousness in me. But see, that didn't stop in Genesis 3 because we saw it in Exodus, the whole Passover. Through the plagues, God was, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to deliver you. And so what did he do? He said, take the blood of a lamb and put it over the doorpost. And when the angel of death comes through, he's going to do what? He's going to pass over you. That's the Passover feast. We're going to talk about that in just one second. Because the blood of the innocent lamb was over the doorpost. They passed over them. All the Old Testament covenants, all the Old Testament rituals was all about an animal dying so that you can be forgiven. The blood had to be sacrificed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Then comes Jesus. (laughs) Then comes Jesus. And in Luke chapter 22, as he was enjoying the Passover feast with his disciples. They were celebrating in Jewish history what took place in Exodus. And Jesus, knowing the promised covenant that was yet to come, in Luke chapter 22 with his disciples, it says, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then they continued to eat. And then it tells us, and he took bread and and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, now now get this, the significance, four cups in in the feast of the Passover. After supper came the fourth cup. The fourth cup was the cup of redemption in Jewish tradition. That was the cup that Jesus held up, the cup of the covenant, the redemption covenant. And he held it up and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant, what? In my blood. This is the new covenant. And he said, this is the way that you draw into close intimacy. This is the way that you walk with me. And and the God's storyline through all of human history is simply this, that the blood of the innocent has always been shed for the sin of the guilty. The blood of the innocent has always been shed for the sin of the guilty. You can't pay the price for your sin. God can You and I nowhere meet his standard of holiness and righteousness. Only God does. That's why he had to send his son whose blood was sufficient enough to take away my sin, to nullify it, to make it void so that I could enter into a relationship with Jesus, to go with Jesus. As we close, I don't know if you caught this, One of the things I encourage people often in Bible study is to, as you're reading through a text, look for words that are repeated or emphasized. I don't know if you noticed it in the the end of this chapter. Three times a particular word is used, and I believe it's incredibly significant to us today. The word is appear, appear or appeared. In verse 26, It's a past tense. It says that he has appeared to put away sin. In verse 24, it's a a present tense. He says um, that that he is now to appear. And in verse 28, it's it's a future tense that he will appear. 
Do you see it? Past, present, future. He has appeared. He is now appearing at the right hand of the throne of God, ever interceding on our behalf as our great high priest. He has appeared to lay down his life. He is currently appearing in the presence of God, and one day he will appear. This speaks to my salvation, that one day I was saved. There was a time in the past that I gave my heart and life to Jesus Christ, and I was saved. That's salvation. Currently, I am being saved. Not by going back and doing it over and over and over, but because I am saved, God is doing a redeeming work, a transforming work in me, which is why we say it a lot here, that that spiritual transformation leads to gospel saturation. There's a sanctifying work that God is doing in my life now. I was saved. I am being saved. God is doing a transforming work. I'm growing up to be more like him, moving away from the milk of the word, not needing others to teach and instruct, learning to step into ministry. I'm doing the things that God calls me to do. Why? Because he's sanctifying me. He's transforming me from the inside out. I was saved. I am currently being saved. And one day when he appears, I will be saved for all eternity. My salvation, my sanctification, one day my glorification. And what he's reminding these readers is simply this, God's got you. God's got you. Listen to me. I don't, whatever's going on in your life right now, I want you to know this. God loved you in your past. He loves you right now. And he loves you tomorrow. He loves you in your future. He knows everything about you. He knows everything that's going on. He loved you. He does love you. And he will love you. He is a great and mighty God. This is what he calls us to, this intimate relationship with him, to know that I was loved, I am loved. I will be loved, I was saved, I am currently being saved because through his love and his grace, he's continuing to conform me to his image. One day I will be saved. When this life is over and he calls me into his presence, I will be saved for all eternity. Folks, that's hope, that's security, that's joy, that is comfort, knowing that God's got us. So I want to ask you this morning, where do you stand with Jesus? Are you outside? Are you in or are you with? Are you with him? Are you walking in fellowship with him? We've been talking about the blood of Jesus, and as the band comes In just a moment, we're going to sing, and I just want to share these words with you because this is significant. We talk about the blood. Some people say, man, you you shouldn't talk about that. We have to. We have to. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. You and I can't be forgiven. You and I can't enter into personal relationship with the God of the universe through the blood of, except through the blood of Jesus Christ. It says, I was a wretch. I remember who I was. I was lost. I was blind. I was running out of time. Sin separated. The breach was far too wide, but from the far side of the chasm, you held me in your sight, right? Eternity passed. God had me in his lens. He had me in his sight. In my sin, he had me in his sight, and he came. He said, so you made a way across the great divide, left behind heaven's throne to build it here inside. And there at the cross, you paid the debt I owed. You broke my chains. You freed my soul for the first time I had hope. It is good to have hope through the blood and forgiveness of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. 
Thank you, Jesus, it has washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, you have saved my life, brought me from the darkness into glorious light. I have to ask you this morning, have you come to the place that you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Yes or no? Some of you are going, yes. Man, I'm all in. Some of you are going, no, I'm not sure. Some of you are sitting here going, I'm not sure. This morning, we want to invite you to settle that, to secure it through the blood of Jesus Christ, to acknowledge the, the holy, righteous blood of Jesus paid a price for you that you couldn't pay. He loves you that much. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's because he loved me in the past. He loves me right now, and he will love me in my future. That doesn't change. My standing with him changes. When I'm outside or when I come in or I learn to life, learn to live life with him. So throughout the room, online, just heads bowed. I just want to give us a moment with the Lord this morning. All through the room, nobody's looking around. I just have to ask you a very honest question. Where do you stand with Jesus this morning? Do you know him? Are you walking with him? Are you standing outside looking in? There's no greater decision. We want you to understand how to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Through his blood, you can experience forgiveness. You can experience hope. You can experience peace. Not through external things. Those are, those are fine. But those will not bring you salvation. Those will not bring you forgiveness. Those will not bring you peace. Those will not bring you joy. It's only as you walk with Jesus. Maybe in this room or online, maybe you just need to give your heart and life to Jesus very simply. Would you just surrender your life to him? Lord Jesus, I am a sinner in the best way I know how I just I give my life to you. I've made a mess of it. I give it to you. God, forgive me. Thank you for what Jesus has done for me. God, the best way I know how I give my life to him. Come into my life, change me, and make me the person you want me to be. Maybe that prayer expresses the desire of your heart and We'd love to talk with you. During this song, I, I want you to feel the freedom in this room to, to do what God leads you to do. If you want to come and talk, I'm going to be off to your left, my right. I would love to just talk with you. Maybe you just need to remain seated where you are, just right in your seat. Just Maybe you need to get on your knees right where you are. Just get on your knees before the Lord. Maybe you need to come and just use the front of this stage as an altar. Just come and, and just pray. Just spend a moment with the Lord. Maybe you've been walking away from the Lord and you realize God really does love me right now where I am and, and I just need to draw close to him. Whatever God is doing in your heart, in, in your life, in this moment, would you just give this moment to him and let him speak to you? If you want to stand and sing, join the praise team, that's great. If you want to remain seated, if you want to kneel, if you want to come and pray, whatever God is doing in your heart and life, Father, this moment is yours. We give it to you. Would you do in us, Father, what only you can do through the blood of Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen.